Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amos chapter 5. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we now continue in worship. We continue by listening, by tuning in as the Word of God is being read and taught, expounded on. We wonder what your Spirit might be wanting to say to us, to our hearts. We want to be nourished and challenged, convicted, purified. Lord, we pray that all of that would take place in the next several minutes as we gather to understand the writings of this prophet. You have our attention, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an early American, not early, he's about a hundred years ago, an American author by the name of Nathaniel Hawthorne said something very interesting about death. He said, A grave, wherever found, preaches a short and pithy sermon to anyone. A grave, wherever found, preaches a short and pithy sermon to anyone. And it's true. Strolling through a graveyard has its advantages. And what what does it speak? It says, Well, you're going to be here soon. All of us have an appointment with death. Did you know that today, about 147,276 people died? That's the average number of people who die around the world on a daily basis. Now, that's offset by the birth rate, but nonetheless, 147,276 funerals. 147,276 passings into eternity. That's sobering. Where did they all go? It was Solomon who said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And he tells you why. Because that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Now I would loosely translate that. A stroll through a cemetery is better than a trip to Vegas. It'll sober you up really quick. During this time, the prophet Amos is preaching about the judgment of God that is coming. In chapter 5, he is given a task to bring a message, but to sing a song. He's the singing prophet. He's not singing a happy song. He's singing what is called here a lamentation, a funeral dirge, a sad, sad melody. It's the kind of a song that would be sung at a funeral, and indeed his own nation or part of it, the ten northern tribes, the country of Israel, is dying effectively going into judgment. And so God says that he's to take up a lamentation. Now this is the third message that Amos brings. We mentioned last week that there were five separate messages 
that the prophet Amos brings to those ten northern tribes of Israel. And then after these messages, beginning in chapter 7, which we'll get to next time, there are dreams and visions that God gives them. But now we're in the third message. And the first three messages in chapters 4, 5, and part of chapter 6, each of them begins with, hear this word. And then the final two messages are beginning by saying woe to those, or it's some woeful message, very, very prophetic. So we have the third message. It says, hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. So we understand right away that this chapter is not going to be a laughing, happy chapter, although the people in Israel thought it was a time for joy. God will say through this prophet, you're singing the wrong tune. You're singing the wrong song. A few years ago, there was a trend that made its way through churches around America, South Africa, Europe. It was the Holy Laughter Movement. Now, if you've never heard of it, let me just brief you on it. People would get together in services and as worship songs were being sung and they would softly meditate upon the Lord, laughter would break out. And people claimed it was the Holy Spirit giving them a wave of laughter. And you you really have to see to believe. But somebody would laugh and then laugh loud and then be on the floor splitting a gut, laughing so hard and saying it was the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know what great effect of revival or holiness it really had upon the church. I don't see that it helped much. And I sort of lean toward the second, that maybe not. And perhaps, just perhaps, because there are sections like this, in fact, a lot more sections like this than the laughing sections, Though the Lord brings joy, don't misunderstand me to His people, perhaps what we could use a little bit more of, rather than holy laughter, is some holy mourning over sin. Some holy repentance. Jesus said, blessed, or oh how happy, are those who mourn. Before there can be joy, there has to be some sort of sorrow that is felt for our human condition apart from the shed blood of Christ. And that is an ongoing attitude of repentance. So this prophet is called to sing a cry, a sad, sad dirge, a lamentation. Now, in verses 1 through 17 of this chapter, is the proclamation by the prophet about the death or the impending judgment, the end of the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes. That's verses 1 through 17. The proclamation of death. He's the funeral singer. He proclaims the death of the nation because the Assyrians are going to take them captive. Beginning in verse 18 through the end of chapter 5 and the entire chapter of chapter 6 is an elaboration on the proclamation. So he makes a proclamation, sings the song, 
And then he elaborates, giving us more reasons why God is bringing this judgment upon the nation. Now, the first part of the song, God is pleading with the nation to return, to seek him. It's as if, even though he is proclaiming judgment and death that is coming, it's like one final plead for people to come back to him. That is the heart of God. It could be that you're in a position tonight where you've wandered from the Lord. The distance that you feel between you and your God is significant. You have taken several steps knowingly away from God's will. And you're feeling the sorrow. You're sensing the distance. Well, the message to you would be, come back. Seek the Lord. Choose life, not death. Oh, but I've taken 20 steps away from the Lord. But you'll find if you turn, it's one step back. You'll take one step and you'll find the arms of God ready to take you in. There's a story of a famous rabbi who was walking down the dusty path in Israel with his disciples. The disciples were discussing the fine points of repentance. And one of them asked, Rabbi, when is the proper time for man to repent? And the rabbi gave them a stunning answer. He said, well, it is certain that a man should repent before he dies. And they looked at each other, and they looked at the rabbi, and one of them said, But rabbi, no one knows when one will die. We don't know when the last day of life is. And the rabbi said, Ah, the answer to that problem is this. Repent today. Be ready now. Come back to him now. So now we hear this song Hear the word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Why a lamentation? Because they were singing a song of celebration. And God is saying, you're singing the wrong tune. Here's the deal. Under King Uzziah in Judah and King Jeroboam II in Israel, life was pretty good. The people thought, there's reason for celebration. Our borders are expanded. Our military is strong. Our tax base is low. We have never been better off than we are now. And physically, outwardly, they were at an all-time high. But spiritually, they were at an all-time low. So they were singing joyful songs. They were celebrating. They were running around Samaria and Jerusalem singing, Happy days are here again. And God is saying, wrong tune. You ought to be singing not a song of celebration, but a tune of lamentation. And since they weren't singing it, he's going to have the prophet go to Samaria and sing the song for them. I was reading an article that I found, on one one hand, funny, and the other hand, just very interesting. 
in the uh, island nation of Sri Lanka, which is right off the southern tip of India, there's a group of rebel insurgents called the Tamil Tiger Rebels. For the last 20 years, they have fought the government. Now, these are insurgents. They're rebels. They're a self-proclaimed rebel government. Since they started their rebellion 20 years ago, 64,000 people have died. Now, all of a sudden, this self-proclaimed government wants a national anthem. And they've said, and this is the weird part, they said, we want a national anthem, something that has 18 lines to it, some tune that is catchy and lively. Catchy and lively? Here's an organization that has brought death through rebellion for 20 years, and they want a national anthem that's catchy and lively. They're singing the wrong tune. Even as those ten northern tribes were singing the wrong song, and God instructs Amos to sing a funeral dirge, a lamentation. And I find it fascinating that in verse 2, the ten northern tribes are called the virgin of Israel has fallen. Now, why is that their description? Remember, the prophet Hosea, who was a contemporary with Amos, didn't say that Israel was a virgin, but said that Israel was a harlot, an adulteress. She's left God and gone after other gods. So why does the prophet Amos refer to the same group as a virgin? Well, not because of their beauty and not because of their faithfulness to the Lord. They were anything but. But they were a virgin in that they had never yet been totally conquered. They had not been defiled by an enemy yet. And soon they would be. 722 B.C. would roll around, and for the first time, that land would be defiled by foreigners. So now she's a virgin. She had never been conquered. Soon she would become conquered by the enemy. So the title is given, The Virgin of Israel Has Fallen, speaking prophetically. She will rise no more. Now that's not an indefinite statement. Please don't take it to mean that. It doesn't mean that throughout history, Israel will never rise again, because since then, she has risen. She has become a nation. But the point here is that she will have no more strength to fend off the Assyrians. She would go into captivity and not rise from that captivity. And then Judah would fall in 586 B.C., and they would all be taken into Babylon. And then 70 years later, they would rise again and come back into the land. But be careful that you don't read into that a perpetuity of not rising again. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 11, basically, is God done with the nation of Israel? God forbid, or certainly not. God has made a covenant with that people group. For thus says, verse 3, the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. Now this is a disparaging statistic. Here's the point he is making. The army will go out from the city and only 10% of the soldiers will return. There will be a 90% death rate. No army can sustain that. An army, when fighting, can sustain a 50% loss and still have the wherewithal to go on fighting. But 90% is hopeless. They're going to be destroyed. And only 10% will return. 10% will come left. 
which, if you remember your Bible, is a fulfilled prophecy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, as God is making a covenant with these people, God says, now look, when you go into the land, you obey me, because if you don't, I'm going to send several plagues upon you. And one of them is that you will be left few in number. That's Deuteronomy 28, around verse 62 or 67. I haven't quite got it, but it's around that. It's a long chapter. You will be left few in number, even though you once were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So here is that prophecy becoming imminently true with the Assyrian captivity about to plunder them. It goes on to say that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Now just, I want you to note something about the Bible. Whenever the Bible is exact, take it as exact. If God says 10% will be left, you can expect 10% will be left. If God says 90% will be wiped out, then 90% will be wiped out. And yet, even though the Bible is very exact prophetically, for some reason people have a tendency to want to spiritualize rather than take it literally. They want to allegorize it. I've heard this said, uh, well, I do believe in the Bible literally, but when it comes to prophecy, I take it allegorically, figuratively. Really? On what basis can you do that? Who gave you the right to do that? How can you say, well, this is literal and this is not, unless it is explained by the context to do so? And there is figurative language. There is allegorical language. There are parables. But they're explained in the context. Now, I'm getting to a point. Because some people who say, well, you know, the Bible is literal. We take it as literal. But when it comes to the millennium, things like that, we don't believe that there's a literal thousand-year period. On what basis can you say that? Especially since the Bible explicitly says a thousand years. If it, a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years, pray tell. What does it mean? See, when you think like that, you open Pandora's box for interpretation. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. But it's interesting, when you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot of exact numbers, aren't there? There's seven churches. There's 24 elders. There's four living creatures. There's 144,000. That's an explicit number. There's one-third of mankind. There's 42 months. There's 1,260 days. All of these explicit numbers that mean something that are corroborated even by the Old Testament. So if you say, well, I know it says that, but it doesn't mean that, you are going to have huge problems interpreting the Bible. I love what Vance Havner used to say. He said, it's always easier to believe what the Bible actually says than to understand what some people think it meant to say. You've heard people say things like, well, I know the Bible says that, but it didn't mean that. What it means is, really, based on what? You don't have the arbitrary ability to give that kind of an interpretation. That's not faithful to the text. So God is exact in His prophecies. 
For thus says the Lord God to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. That's God's heart. That's his plea. But do not seek Bethel. That's that place that was once the holy place where the tabernacle was. It became ruined through idol worship, the golden calf idolatry. Nor enter Gilgal. Same thing happened there down south after they crossed the Jordan River with Joshua. They set up camp at Gilgal. It became defiled as years went on. Nor pass over to Beersheba. That's the southern tip of the country. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Now there's a play on words here in the Hebrew, where it says, Bethel, which means in Hebrew, house of God. It says, shall come to, in Hebrew, Bet-Aven. Bethel will be Bet-Aven, house of nothing. The house of God will eventually become the house of nothing, Because, A, you've polluted it with your idolatry. And number two, it will be polluted because of captivity when the Assyrians come in and destroy Bethel. And again, a plea, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. I love the heart of the character, the nature of our God. And here's why. Whenever God is about to judge, you find He first reaches His arms out to embrace and to forgive. He is so compassionate. One of His great attributes is that God is long-suffering. Aren't you glad He doesn't have a quick temper and just say, you just torqued me off. You're done. He waits. He's long-suffering. God waited 120 years while Noah was building that boat. 120 years of people watching a boat being built. 120 years of Noah preaching that God is going to judge before God did send the flood. That's patience. Then God waited 430 years while he was patient with the Canaanites. Have you ever wondered about that scripture in Genesis where God tells Abraham what's going to happen with him and the people that will come after him, his own flesh and blood? He says in chapter 15, Your descendants will be slaves in a land not their own for 400 years. And they will be mistreated by those people, slaves of those people, until I bring them back into this land. And then God says this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Ever wonder what that text means? What does that have to do with anything? This is what God is saying. I'm going to give this land, Abraham, that you're standing on to the people of Israel eventually. It's going to be their gift that I give to them. But it's going to be 430 years before they get it. In the meantime, they'll be in Egypt, they'll be slaves, they'll be mistreated, then they'll cry out to me, so I'm going to deal with their iniquity and purge them and bring them back to this land. In the meantime, I'm going to give those who live in the land of Canaan, the Amorites, the Canaanites, 430 years before I judge them. They're going to hear of my work through you. They're going to hear 
about how strong I am with the people of Israel. So I'm going to give them 430 years to repent. Then, if they don't repent, and God is basically saying, I know in advance they won't, you and your people are going to come in and take over that land, and I'll give it to them as an inheritance. But God is always patient, far more patient than I am. And here's one of the things we struggle with as Christians. We have to learn to be patient with the patience of God. See, if somebody mistreats you, says something bad about you, pulls out in front of you on the road, your first instinct is anything but patience. You want justice. You want it now. You'll follow that person. And if it's daytime, you might give that person a look. A cold, hard, look-could-kill kind of a look. Or somebody that you know who's a believer, and God is taking what seems like an inordinate amount of time to get through to that person who's errant, one of God's own children. You want to become impatient with the patience of God. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is patient, calling out here. You turn justice, verse 7, something that is sweet, to wormwood, a small, bitter plant, and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He, God, made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadows of death into mourning, He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos now is pointing to nature. Two constellations in the sky that were familiar even in ancient times, mentioned even in the book of Job. First on the list, Pelides. A constellation that is seen the latter part of the winter, just before sunrise in the sky, it's a small cluster that can be seen. And when you see it just before sunrise, it's an indication that springtime is almost here. Then there's the constellation Orion that is an indication that wintertime is almost near. It can be seen after the sun sets in the fall of the year. They were indicators. And so God, who controls all of that, was giving his people the indicators that his judgment was coming. Verse 9, he rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. Now God gets very specific in this funeral dirge as to some of the problems that he is dealing with them about. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. What this means is, is that they had... Well, let me take you back. In those days, if you had an issue with another person, and you took that person to court, the courthouse was at the entrance of every city. It was called the gate of the city. Now, walled cities had gates, and a gate wasn't a little wooden door that swings back and forth. A gate in an ancient city was a room, an enclosure. And in that room were benches where the elders sat at the gate of the city. They sat there throughout the day. 
And if you had a dispute with a brother or a sister, you would go to the elders at the gate and they would adjudicate your case. Judges had become corrupt. The poor were suffering. The rich were paying off the judges. So you couldn't get a fair trial. So if somebody came and was like Amos or like Hosea or like Isaiah down south or a righteous judge who spoke truth, they wouldn't be well received. They weren't being tolerated. They hate the one who rebukes at the gate. There is a consequence in speaking truth and serving the Lord. Anybody who decides, Lord, I want to be used totally for your glory. Speak through me. I want to speak the truth. Don't you know that when you say that, though God gets very excited because he loves to use people, there's another side of the equation. All the minions of hell get restless. There's a consequence to serving the Lord and being a spokesperson for the Lord. Jeremiah was put down into a pit. Other prophets were maligned and accused. The apostles killed because they spoke the truth. So there are consequences, and those who rebuke, those who are honest, those who are truthful would suffer. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, oppression of the poor, though you have built houses of hewn stone, you're not going to dwell in them. Though you've planted pleasant vineyards, you're not going to drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just, taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. There's a story about John Bunyan who had his own gate experience. John Bunyan was a preacher, some of you know, in in England when preaching against the organized church was frowned upon even to the point of death. John Bunyan, this preacher, was warned, either you stop your preaching or we'll put you in jail. He had a dilemma. He was already poor. He knew that if he was put in jail, his wife and children would be destitute. He didn't know what he would do. He felt, God has called me to preach. I have to speak the truth. But my family, they've already suffered. They'll suffer immensely. But he did preach. He was jailed in the Bedford jail. These are the consequences, the side effects from somebody who speaks truth. I'll never forget one young man in the ministry here years ago at this church had an unusually bad day. I think somebody yelled at him. They tried to counsel that person. The person walked out of their office yelling at them. And just a lot of things went wrong. And at the end of the day, just, you know, hung his head. I, I could tell he was thinking, I didn't sign up for this. We walked up to him, gave him a big hug and said, welcome to the ministry. And then we bowed our heads and we prayed that God would give him the strength. Amos was one of those who spoke righteously, as did Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, and they suffered, as we said. Therefore, verse 13, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. 
Now that's sad. That it would get to the place where because there would be inequity in the land, that the wise, the prudent, who had something to say and correct, would just come to a point where they say, I'm not going to talk. It's not going to really do any good anyway. It's just going to fuel the situation. It'll get worse. So God says through the prophet, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken. Now, they had spoken that. Did you know that one of the ancient slogans of Israel, and it's found even in the Scripture, was this slogan, The Lord is with you. Go up and fight, for the great God of Israel is with you. And there was always this slogan. They would encourage one another saying, God's with you. The presence of God is with us. But now, though they kept saying it during the time of Jeroboam II, it had just become an empty slogan. It was a delusional term. It really wasn't true. God wasn't with them. They had spoken it, but God wasn't with them. God was about to deliver them into the hand of their enemies. So what the prophet is saying is this. Now, if you do turn to God, you do seek Him, then the Lord will be with you as you have spoken. It won't just be an empty slogan. It will be true. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, God of hosts, the Lord says this. Now I want you to notice verse 16 because there's an unusual construction of God's names. They're sort of stacked up one on top of, of another. It says, Therefore the Lord, that's God's covenant name, therefore Yahweh, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. It was that tetragrammaton, that ineffable, unpronounceable name of God from Exodus chapter 3. Then it says the God of hosts. That's in Hebrew, Elohim Tzabah, one of the names of God. Then it says the Lord after that. That is Adonai. So there's three names of God. God is identifying Himself using the covenant name with which God delivered them from Egypt by His power. Then the God of hosts, the one who controls all of the heavenly hosts and the earthly armies. And then Adonai, the Lord, the master in charge of everything. This is the one who's doing this. This is the one who's speaking this. There shall be wailing in all the streets... They shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful lamenters to wailing in all the vineyards. There shall be wailing, for I will pass through, says the Lord. Do you remember back in Exodus when God said to His children of Israel, Go inside the house and take blood of a lamb and place it on the lintels and doorposts. If you do that, I'll pass through over you. Now he would pass through the land, he said that night, and judge the Egyptians. But who's ever under the covering of blood, I'll pass over you. Hence the term Pesach, Passover. So the God who once passed over them in judgment, with the covenant name of God, the Deliverer, 
God says, I'll pass through you this time in judgment. No longer will I pass over you. I have come to judge you using these people, the Assyrians. Now in verse 18, notice the first word. Woe. This is now the fourth message of the prophet. And as we said, the first three messages begin with a phrase, hear this word. The second two begin with the phrase, woe, or woe to you. By the way, in Hebrew, it's oi. Oi. Woe. Oi, God is saying. Oi vey to you. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand upon a wall, he wants a rest, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? It seems like the people of that time were talking about the day of the Lord. They would get together and they noted that even though times were good, the Assyrians were threatening them. And so they would turn to each other and say, Boy, don't you wish the day of the Lord would come? Now, this is what they were thinking when they used that term. They were thinking that the day of the Lord would be the day when God would deliver them from all of the enemies. What God is saying, why would you cry for the day of the Lord? For the day of the Lord is a period of judgment. Not, I will deliver you from your enemies. The day of the Lord is where I deliver you to your enemies. So you're crying out this pious phrase, Boy, I wish the Lord would come. Don't you know what that means? It means judgment for you. So they're using the pious speech, not knowing what they're calling for. The day of the Lord will be darkness and not light. By the way, the theme of Joel, you remember, was the day of the Lord. It's a phrase mentioned 26 times in Scripture. Something just to replant in your memory. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament, which means not a 24-hour day, but a period, an episode. The day of the Lord is a, a period of time, just like you have the day of man or the day of Christ. You have this period in which the day of man is over and now God takes over in some severe manner. So, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament where God would judge either nations or his people using other nations, forms a template of the future day of the Lord, which we understand now, putting all the Bible together, is a period of seven years, known as the tribulation, and the real day of the Lord, that real period where it's unusually harsh, is the last three and a half years, the great tribulation. It's when the day of man will be over. And God sets out to bring in the day of Christ, which is the millennial reign, the thousand years reign of Christ upon the earth. And the day of man messing it all up will be over. But he's saying it's a day of darkness for you imminently. Verse 21, I hate, I despise. Whenever God says he hates something, we want to listen up, right? Because if we say we love the Lord... We want to stay away from what he hates and we want to gravitate toward what he loves. So in Proverbs, when it says, there are six things, yea, seven, that the Lord hates. 
we go, hmm, I wonder what he hates. And then we read the first, a proud look. Ooh. Feet that are swift to shed blood. Hmm. A false witness. Eee. Let's notice what God hates. I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. That sort of takes us by surprise. Why would God hate the very feast days that He commanded His people to observe? Why would God hate and despise the very offerings which God prescribed that His people perform? Because they were going through the motions. They left the emotion. There was no passion for God. There was no heart after God. They were just going through the motions of... It's time to bring one of those animals over to that tabernacle and kill it and go through all that stuff that happens that we do as Jewish people in the Old Testament. Their heart wasn't in it. It's very similar to Isaiah chapter 1. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, says the Lord. I hate your new moons and your appointed feasts. My, your hands are full of blood. When you call upon me, I won't even answer you. And then God says, this is what you need to do. Seek justice. Relieve the widow. Help the oppressed. Here you are, worshiping me, going through the motions, no passion, no heart. At the same time, you mistreat one another. So look at what the prophet says right after this. It's really probably the highlight verse, the most famous verse, the key verse of the book. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, there is a belief system, even in Christendom, that trusts in going through the motions. It's called sacramentalism, or the theological term sacerdotalism. There's a million-dollar word. What that is, is that it believes in a hierarchy of human beings before you get to Christ and that in keeping certain rituals, then God's favor or grace will be conferred upon you once you meet those requirements of keeping that ritual or sacrament. If you do this, then God will give you favor. If you don't do it, you won't get it. So you are earning your way. It's trusting in the ritual. God and his nature and character throughout the Bible repeatedly would say, I don't care about the ritual. I don't care how beautiful the song or the sacrifice is done. I care about the condition of heart. You could sing so flat and pathetic that the, the rows around you would just clear out. People go, oh my, that's horrible. It's almost blasphemy the way that person sings. Don't they know they're singing to God? And all the while, God could be up in heaven and go, Oh, that's beautiful. And you would be thinking, No, Lord, it's not beautiful. It's a noise. Yeah, but I said, Make a joyful noise. 
Whereas another person could have a voice that's like, oh, wow, that's gorgeous. God must be pleased with that. And God might say, oh, I hate hearing that because I see past the voice into the heart. I see the motivation. I see what prompts it. Now, please don't take that to judge every person with a good voice and go, oh. Verse 25 Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Okay, now you answer that. Did they? Yes, they did. They did offer God sacrifices. They did establish the worship system of the tabernacle with all of the animal sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, all of the rituals that God prescribed. They did it in the wilderness. However, notice something intriguing. You also carried Sikut. Now that's an Assyrian star god. You also carried Sikut, your king, and Kiyun, your idols. Kiyun was the god of Saturn. Here's the interesting thing about these children of Israel. Even in the wilderness, even after God established the tabernacle system of pure worship, Whenever they would encounter pagan peoples, they would seem to morph a bit. They would seem to accept the foreign gods of these other cultures and be quickly turned aside from God being tainted by other worship systems. So here they are, going through the motions of true worship in the wilderness, carrying with them some of the idols from the peoples around them that they had picked up the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus. You go far to the north to the Assyrians, says the Lord whose name is the God of hosts. Now I had planned to go through chapter 6 and get into the fifth message, but, and you can see it starts in verse 1, Oi! Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. But we'll save that for next time. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, the prophet has spoken on a number of issues. Your heart is revealed on various subjects. Perhaps the most important being is that you never separate the worship from the worshiper. You don't look at what is being offered apart from the whom is bringing the worship, the offering to you. While we care about art, you seem to care a lot more about the heart. We remember the Lord Jesus said to the woman at Samaria, The Father is looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, I pray that our lives, our spiritual activities, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, singing, would all be done with a proper, pure heart so that we can truly come near to you with clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, we pray as we close that you'd search us and see if there's any word we should hear, 
any woe that we should be entertaining about our own lives. Now we can hear your Holy Spirit saying in the midst of our own activities, our own decisions, seek me and live. Turn to me so that truly I will be with you. Lord, we pray that we would delight to walk with you, not just here in the sanctuary, but out in the secular world, in our neighborhoods, at our places of work and school, places where we work out, where we buy coffee and where we have meals, that we would walk with you and you would walk with us, that we would be so sensitive that we couldn't stand a moment where we're out of fellowship with you. But our hearts would be the kind where we quickly turn. And if there's any area tonight, Lord, even during this last episode of singing, Lord, that we would bring that before you during this time. Cleanse us. Make us new. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.